Let me invite you to turn in your copy of the Word to Psalm 30. We continue our series in the Psalms. And it may not surprise you, this psalm is written by David. We're in the David section of the Psalms, and that's a lot of them, of course. But it's a humbling psalm for David to write. It's a humbling psalm for David to write because he's been a bit of a naughty boy. He's been a bit of a bad cat. He's uh, not done well. He has to admit his error. We'll come and see that this evening. In a classic psalm. We're told it's a song at the dedication of the temple. It's a psalm of David. Let's hear David's words. Let's hear our Lord's words. Let's receive them, expecting God to use them this week in our lives. David writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help. And you've healed me. Oh, Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you as saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The grass withers and the flower fades. This word, the word of our God, doth not. It endures forever. Let's pray and come to the God who calls us to praise him. Let's pray. O Lord, we come in the evening. We come in the dark. We come in the rain. We come perhaps in the gloom of ourselves. Transform us, Lord, by your favor and by your face. We ask this in the name of the one who shows us your glory in his face, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is a psalm, really, of reversals. It's a psalm of reversals. It's a psalm that talks about something completely changing. It's a psalm that speaks about the evening turning into the morning, about the crying face turning into the happy face. It's a psalm about transformation. It's a psalm about change. But we're not quite sure when it was. We're told here in the very opening that it occurred at the dedication of the temple. But of course, David was not there when his son Solomon dedicated the temple. So it can't mean... Solomon's dedication of the temple. In fact, this word temple could mean house. It's just the house. It could mean David's house. He didn't build a few houses. Maybe this is when he's breaking ground on his own house. 
more likely perhaps it, it, it could mean uh, the consecration of the site of the temple. The very end of 2 Samuel, after David sends, after David takes a census, 2 Samuel 24. If you had to pin me down, that's probably what I would say. But it's not important, really, in one sense. It's not significant, because the major point is very clear. When God delivers you freely, he expects you to freely praise him. When God delivers you, he expects you to give permanent personal, promiscuous praise. It's a psalm of praise. But it starts off in a pretty bad spot. It begins in a pretty delicate, desperate situation. So if you're taking notes, you want to outline point. You can begin here with the first three verses and the last two verses, 1 to 3, 11 to 12. And you'll see here David's desperate situation, his desperate situation. He has an urgent problem, but he begins by praising God. He he says, I'm going to praise you right now because of what you've done. You've delivered me. My enemies were against me. Verse one, verse two. I was sick on the inside. You healed me. Now, right there, we have two different issues. On the one hand, we have disease. On the other hand, we have enemies. So is David praying for enemies or is he praying for viruses inside? Again, we're not sure. It could be both. It could be a spiritual, it could be a metaphor for spiritual issues. The point is, David's in a crisis. He's been in a difficult situation. It gets so bad. Look at verse 3. It gets so bad. He says, I was going to die. I was going to be like the people in the pit. You preserve my life, God. You see, God didn't just prevent evil from conquering David, but he preserved his life. He was going to die. It may very well have been sickness and illness. But do you sense here that the point is David is in an urgent spot. He's had a great need. He's been delivered from that great need. And so David feels compelled almost to jump into praising God. And he comes back there at the very end of the psalm. The very end of the psalm. He says, I was wearing funeral clothes. I was wearing funeral clothes. And then we started doing a a wedding dance. You know, the thing about weddings is that there's the wedding and it's beautiful and it's formal and it's glorious. And then there's the party afterwards. And they're both needed. You need the actual ceremony, but you need the party to rejoice. And that's what David is saying here. He's saying, I was at a funeral and then you made it into a wedding. I was at death's door and you made it in to life. You gave me this. You have transformed and reversed everything about me. And so what does David think he need to do? What's David's response here? It's verse 12. This is perhaps one of the most significant verses in the whole psalm. David's response to this. When God graciously reverses you, what are you to do? You don't do what David did here. What does David do? That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Two key things here. First, David says, my glory is meant for your praise. 
My glory, my strength, my goodness is designed to be praising you. Or you might put it this way. Whatever good job you get, whatever attaboy you get at work, whatever straight A's you get on your report card, whatever good thing you did last week, whatever glorious thing, your beauty, when you get all dolled up and dressed up, your cash, your wallet, and how fat it is, your car and how beautiful it is, your achievements and how grand they are, your strength and how buff you are, your intellect and how smart you are, your cleverness and how wise you are, your skill at parenting or grandparenting or sunning or grandsonning, whatever glory you have is designed to praise God. And the problem is we stop, we stop. We get our glory, we say, I'm good at this, and we stop there. We say, I need to use this for myself. And oh, by the way, yes, give glory to God. But really to me. We use our glory for ourselves, and we're happy to thank God for his grace. But do we use our glory to sing his praise? David is saying, you have delivered me. I want to give all that I am to you. I want to give all of my thoughts to you. I want to turn over all of my emotions to you. I want to give all of my will to you. And notice the last verse, the last word of the psalm, forever, forever, forever. Not just for, you know, enough time until God forgets about you or you forget about God. Not just enough time to kind of balance out the, the, the work that God had done. It's not like David was sick for a week, so he's going to praise God for a week afterwards. No, David may have been sick for a week or for a month, and God heals him and God delivers him. And David says, if that's all I have of your work, I will praise you forever. That's enough in the bank account of your grace for me to praise you all the time. Continuing praise. One act of God equals eternal praise. That's the equation. And the point is, friends, of course, that if all you had in your life as evidence for God's grace was one thing, that should be enough for you. Not just to stay convinced of Christianity, but to be sold out for Jesus, as we used to say. True praise remembers and true praise keeps on praising. There was a guy uh, who was a veteran of World War II. He fought in the European theater. He actually fought in, in the uh, Operation Market Garden, which was the big uh, kind of airdrop in Holland that didn't end super great. But uh, in the early 90s, he went back. He finally was able to go back to uh, you know, the area around Arnhem and Nijmegen in the Netherlands. He was able to look at the graves of the people in his unit, the guys. And, and, and he saw their names and he remembered them. It was very emotional, of course, you can imagine. But what was most striking to him, he said this to his Dutch friends, that they were kind of hosting him. He said to them, these graves are beautiful. Look at the flowers. I'm so glad I came on this special day because the flowers are beautiful. Is it like some Dutch holiday? Is that why the flowers are out there? Because they had decked it out with beautiful Dutch flowers, maybe tulips, who knows? And the Dutch folks said, no, there's no holiday. 
Every day we put fresh flowers here. Every day we put fresh flowers here at the memorials for those who get their lives. In fact, we bring our first graders here. We bring our elementary school kids here regularly on field trips. So they will know the price the Americans paid for our freedom. Every day, fresh flowers. Every day, praise. If the Dutch can do that with flowers, how much more ought you to do that in light of what God has done for you? That's what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, so that, so that you might proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has God saved you? He saved you to worship. He saved you to proclaim his mighty acts. Second, David tells us here of God's tendencies. God's tendencies. This is verse 4 and verse 5. God's tendencies. You know, in, in football games, uh, coaches have certain tendencies. They tend to run the ball this way or that way. They tend to pass the ball more at this time than that time. And part of playing the game is knowing the tendencies of the opponent. And the beautiful thing is that you're not playing a game with God. He tells you his tendencies. You don't have to try to outwit him or suss him out. He tells you his tendencies. So what are his tendencies? I'll read them to you. Verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The great issue, friends, here is that um, by itself, you could take that last line out there. Weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You can cut that out of the psalm. You could put it on a cute little plaque. You could stick it above your mantle. You could write it on, as I think the teenage girls used to do, you could write it on your uh, mirror as your Bible verse, and it could uh, sound really catchy. Every cloud has a silver lining. That's what it could sound like. Cheer up. Things will get better. Take the good and the bad. They'll all come with you. Karma, right? Bad comes. Don't worry. Good's going to come back. But this is not the idea at all. This is not the idea of verse 5. It's true that there are good things in your life and there are bad things in your life. It's true that you can't always see a specific judgment of God in your sickness or a specific blessing of God in your health. But what David is saying here is that God has a tendency and his tendency is to have a very limited time of anger and a humongous time of kindness. David's conviction is that the favor always outweighs the disfavor for God's people. Now, God is displeased with sin. Yes. He's not indifferent to it. No. He judges sin. Yes. Even in Christians. But for his people, for his sheep, his judgments are short-lived. His anger is short-lived. What remains is his favor. You see this even in the Ten Commandments. Right? God's, God's blessings are for thousands of years upon those who love him. Thousands of years. Of course, the problem, friends, is if you don't know Christ, 
God's tendencies are the exact opposite. If you don't know Christ, if you don't trust him, his tendency is the exact opposite. He gives you blessing now. He gives you pleasures now. You are happy and sleek now. You have temporary joy on earth now. The most wicked person, Adolf Hitler, had a German shepherd that he loved named Blondie. And he loved Blondie. A most wicked man had temporary pleasure. He had joy. But what do they have now? As far as I'm aware, what do they have now? Eternal anger. That's the tendency. The portion hereafter for those who don't know Christ is hell. Though you have occasional moments of heaven here on earth. And yet for the Christian, his anger is but for a moment. It's fleeting. His severity, his frown is but for a moment. But his favor is lifelong. That's why David says, look, you may cry one night, but the joy is going to come in the morning. You may cry 2 a.m. one night, but joy will be in the morning. You see, he's telling us what's typical of our God. This is your typical God. And you should give thanks for his tendencies. It's not that you won't have trouble. It's not that you won't have a a suffering-free life. You'll have suffering. But by and large, so many of your trials are temporary. It's what Lewis says. Right? That light momentary affliction. He's quoting Paul, of course. He's preparing for you a weight of glory. You see, when you see the tendencies of this God, when you know your God, you know the way he tends to work, you'll be able to take severity, anger, frustration, hard times. You'll be able to take them in stride because you know joy comes with the morning. But why is David actually in trouble here? It's the third point, then the last point, really. Why is he in trouble? What's been his issue? It's not that he had some disease. It's not really that he had people attacking him. He tells us actually he was arrogant. He was arrogant. We see in verse 6 and verse 7 really the history of an arrogant Christian. He takes us back. He gets a flashback in verse 6. He says, all right, I told you I was sick. I told you I had enemies, but I I know my real problem, God. My real problem was not the other people out there who were mean to me. My real problem was not that I was, you know, stressed out or hurting or I had a a cough or a cold. No, he says, my real problem is. I said in my prosperity, nothing's going to stop me. Or if you want the actual literal Hebrew, I shall never be moved. I won't be moved. I will be great. And, of course, David realizes now, you know, it was by your favor only that I could stand strong. My mountain could be strong. And then you hid your face. You're absent from me. I was dismayed. David had enjoyed God's goodness. And you know what this happens. He had twisted that goodness into arrogance and presumption. He had said, of course God gives me goodness. I'm I'm a strong God. I'm an amazing God. He was cocky. He was arrogant. He was presumptuous. He says, I will not be shaken. Nothing can stop me now. Isn't this what we do as 
as people? I mean, you think that you can prosper because you hustle. You hustle. You work hard. You know, I recall when I was playing football as a young child, I was given one compliment repeatedly. You have good hustle. I came to realize very quickly that that was a cover for not saying other things like you can't catch the ball. You can't throw the ball. You can't run with the ball. You can't tackle well. But I had good hustle. And we think that if we have good enough hustle, we're strong. If we have good enough hustle, we can overcome our problems. We shall not be moved. This is the way the church often works. We think we can manage well if we manage well. If we manage our affairs, if we use uh, secular fundraising techniques or skills, if we use a corporate mindset, if we use the latest and the greatest marketing techniques, we can succeed. God, back burner. Don't need to rely upon him. This is what you see in terms of the nations. So you see in terms of uh, countries. Who is the strongest country in the world? Whoever has the strongest military, the best economy. Doesn't matter about the character of their leaders. That's why one of the most disheartening things to see is arrogance, presumption. How does God deal with an arrogant Christian? Well, look at how he deals with David. Verse 7. You hid your face. What does God do? He hides his face. What does that mean? It means that in some way, the Lord removed the light of his presence. And David says, I was dismayed. And actually, the literal translation there is really, I was scared out of my mind. I was terrified. I was terrified. You weren't there anymore. I thought I was secure. You weren't there anymore. Now, what's fascinating is, how does he come out of it? How does David come out of this? He prays. Verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. And then he gives what is a weird argument. It sounds weird. Maybe to you it's okay. Verse 9. He says, God, if I die, the dust can't praise you. If you kill me right now, if I'm just dead at the door now, the dust can't praise you. It can't sing of your faithfulness. Do you see what David does here? He cannot sense God's presence. So what does he do? He goes to God. He seeks God's presence. He feels God is away in some sense. He feels discouraged. He feels despondent. He feels sad. So what does David do? He seeks God. He goes to the very God who feels far off. He's in a dry spell, so he goes to the very God who is a fountain. Do you see this great lesson? When you feel like God is far off, the solution is not to try to, you know, fix your life with some technique, not to attend some Christian conference or read some Christian book. The solution is to go to God. Solution is to go to God, to seek his face. He does not hide himself so you will despair. He hides himself so that you will seek him and find him. That you will ask 
and the door will be opened to you. And that's why David says, look, you, you can sense him almost barreling down, beating down the door of God in verse 9 and saying, if I die, that's not going to profit you. What advantage can it be for you, God, if I go to the grave? My corpse will not belt out, praise my soul, the king of heaven, like we did this morning. He says, God, if you don't rescue me, you will end up in a praise deficit. You don't want that. That sounds like a weird prayer, doesn't it? The prayer begins with God's glory in mind. It's actually a, a great prayer. It begins with God's glory in mind, and it goes to our whole existence is about praising God. David's argument is, you've made me to praise you. If I die, I can't praise you, which assumes that you are made to praise God. You are made to praise God. That's where David goes. I think that's kind of a notch or two above most of our prayers. Most of our prayers. Why is that? It's what our Lord says. Out of the overflow of our heart, our mouths speak. We don't speak praise to God. We don't pray like this. We don't have God's glory in mind. We have our problems in mind. We don't have God's beauty in mind. We have our own beauty in mind. But if we had this vision like David of God and his greatness and his glory, wouldn't that result in great praise? Wouldn't that result in great prayers like this? Do you see, dear Christian, what you have to do? You need to fill your heart and your mind with God. You need to fill your heart and your mind with who he is in himself, with what he has done for you. And when your heart is filled up with him, when your heart is filled up with his son, Jesus Christ, when you just are praising him and you can't stop doing it. You'll do what David does. You'll speak about him to other people. And you'll find that as you praise God, here's the weird thing. As you start to love God and tell him about it, you'll find that you love him more. And this is what happens in marriages, right? This is what happens in friendships. As you are married, you say to your spouse, I love you. And it may start off as a very mechanical thing. It may begin as a very kind of, oh, formal habit thing. But as you keep saying, I love you, over the years, what happens? You find that you love them more. You find that you love them more. You find, surprisingly, they love you too bad. If they're saying it as well. And so love grows. And by analogy, the same is true. Antony more so of God. If you say to God, I love you, you'll find that you actually begin to love him. Because the mouth cannot help but say what the heart feels. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then what will happen? Secondly, you'll find that God will use your praise of him to attract other people. Win them to faith. And when that person you've been praying for for years is one to faith, you'll find it's even easier to keep praising God. It's even easier to keep praising God. 
So I suppose the, the real question is why, why ought we to praise him? If you need one, let me, get, let me leave you here with, with one, one good ought, one glorious thing. If this was all God had done for you, this gives you the fuel to praise him until you die and beyond. Here's the one thing. Here's the one thing. It's the reason that David can get God's presence after God's absence. Because our arrogance, your arrogance, your presumption, my pride was transferred to David's greater son on the cross of Calvary. Your sin of autonomy, our sin of self-confidence was placed upon Jesus Christ. He did not just almost go down to the pit. David says, oh, I I was going down there, but you you saved me, God. Jesus didn't have a savior for himself. His foot slipped, though innocent. His foot slipped and he fell down. He fell down in the pit. He felt voluntarily forsaken by God. And then what happened? Easter Sunday. God reverses the condition of his son. He raises Jesus Christ from the dead. In the re- re- Christ experiences a far greater reversal from death to life. David just felt like he was dying. He didn't actually die of this. But Christ goes down and down and deeper down still. And he is raised to newness of life. And because he experiences this glorious reversal, if you're a Christian, If you're a little Jesus, if you're connected to him, his reversal is yours forever, secured. And one day you will experience that absolute reversal. One day you will experience that moment when all of the petty problems of peculiar people on earth will be reversed. And you will find yourself living in absolute joy. And you will find yourself thinking, why wasn't I thanking God for all of this before now? Why wasn't I praising him for all of heaven before now? You know, you get a fortitude of that right here. It may not feel like it. it, may not seem like it. But you get a foretaste of that reversal right now. Therefore, your life, that's all you see God doing for you, showing you his favor in Christ, that's all you have as a Christian, that should be enough to fuel your praise this week, this night, this year, and the whole rest of it all together. So let's do it. Let's praise him. And as you praise him, you'll be astounded that the joy will come with the morning. You'll be astounded. Let's pray. Oh, glorious God, we come as those who are prone to the kind of presumption of David. We say, you won't move us. We can't be moved. Nobody can take us down. And Lord, you just give us a sense of your absence. We're undone. Show us that in Christ, you have given us that great deliverance and help our hearts and our lives to praise you. Help our glory to be given to you in praise. Not just today, but forever. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.